Hello, everybody, and welcome to Staying Fit ODAT. My name is Migs, and I'm your host. ODAT is an acronym for one day at a time that I picked up in early sobriety and something that's stuck with me every day since. Welcome to another episode of Staying Fit ODAT. My name is Migs. I'm an alcoholic, and I'm going to be your host today. Uh, just a reminder, as always, please go ahead and help us out with a rating or review. Uh, Apple Podcasts, Podchaser are two great ways to leave a rating and review. Uh, they really help out with the podcast to help it become uh, a suggestion for other people that might not already know about the podcast. You never know when one of these stories could really resonate with someone, uh, whether it could be just for entertaining them to have fun on a long run or when one of these stories could really resonate with someone and help save someone's life who might be really struggling. So please help us out with a rating review and help get this podcast out there for more people who might need to hear these stories. With that being said, I want to go ahead and bring in today's guest. Uh, today's guest is someone who knows quite a few of previous guests that we've had on here and someone who was suggested to me by a recent uh, member of the group here. Tim suggested that we get Matt on this podcast as soon as we were done recording. So I reached out to him and just as Tim expected, he was able to uh, connect. And, you know, here we are just a couple of weeks later and I'm really, really excited so how are we doing today, Matt? We are good. Thanks a lot for having me on. Absolutely. Do you prefer Matt or Matthew? Matt's fine. Matt. All right, cool. All right. So uh, yeah, let's uh, let's go ahead and get started. If you want to tell our listeners who you are, where you're from, if you want to share what you do for a living. Sure. Uh, so my name is Matt. I am 44 years old. I live in Situate, Massachusetts. Um, so basically in between Boston and Cape Cod down on the ocean. Um I have two daughters, 13 and seven, and uh, I've been married uh, now for, let's see, I believe it is 17 years, I think at this point. So That's um, my wife and I met, yeah, my wife and I met in college. So um, on the professional side, I am a technical team manager for a regional insurance carrier um, in our subrogation department, and I've been doing that for a while now. So that's kind of my, you know. That's kind of my day-to-day -day life. Gotcha. Uh, I'm, I'm going to jump into this right away. You are. So you are the second guest in a row, actually, from the New England area. I just nice. uh, I just had Bob Balfour, which he is very open. So I, he just uses his own last name. But I just had him. So I got to ask you right away. Are you a, are you a sports guy? Football, baseball, any of that stuff? Yeah, I love football, man. I love the uh, Patriots. And let me, who didn't it's not that so guy? good this year. You know, it's a, not so good now, but I will I'm a say Steelers I've been a pleasure. Where your only yeah. win, <laughs> right? I know, and that might be sadly that might be the only win this year. But um, oh man, are yeah, you a Red we've Sox had a pleasure. Fan? Yeah, so we we've had a we've had a good you know last twenty years. Growing up as a kid, we didn't win anything, and then you know the last you know twenty years has been pretty good. So I can't complain. I still I still remember like the birth of Tom Brady, like that whole year, and then it was he he was killing it and then he goes back on the bench because Bledsoe is healthy and Bledsoe comes back and then again being a Steelers fan I remember I believe it was yep. the, AFC, the AFC championship it was the Steelers are beating the Patriots and Bledsoe gets hurt which you I don't know part of me thinks that he didn't get hurt that game it was just it looked a lot easier than probably saying we're benching Bledsoe so but Brady had been doing so well that Brady came back in and then second half comeback and then you know, there's that. And then there's the tuck rule. And it's just like all of those things were a perfect storm. And then 
Brady became Brady, and now he's winning championships down south. He's throwing trophies off of yachts. He turned into Florida Tom. I mean, <laughs> the guy. Yeah, and it's funny. Him. Everybody, everybody still loves him. You know, I was at the first game he started for the Patriots. I remember that clearly, and I remember buying a Brady jersey that day. You know, they didn't have that many in the uh, pro shop at the time. It was his first start after Bledsoe got hurt, but. Yeah, we've been pretty lucky. I've been pretty lucky to get to watch that for the last 20 years. So I can't I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, the last thing I'll say about Tom Brady is when he was with the Patriots, I always hated him, respected him. You know, he's the GOAT, but I always hated him for years. Uh, but it's funny seeing him down in Florida now. Uh, I don't know if maybe I just never noticed it, but he is a completely different person now. He's like, he was getting drunk. He was throwing the trophy off the boat, the the, the Super Bowl trophy off the yacht. And then, like, I started following him on TikTok, and he actually has, like, a lot of funny videos on TikTok now. And it's like he became a completely different person when he went down to Florida. I don't know if that weather changed him. He's enjoying it. I don't – maybe he just knows he's at the end of his career and he's loosening up and getting stuff ready for his uh, post-football promotions. But I think complete- Bill Belichick not hanging over his head might be uh, a little bit of less pressure and a little bit – you know, he's able to have a little more fun without the coach there. So I think That's that might be a part of it. But Probably, probably a big part. All right, so let's uh, let's jump right in. We'll uh, we'll go back to your childhood, you know, however you want to tell that version of your story. Sure. Yeah, so I grew up in northern Vermont, um, up on the Canadian border uh, in Newport. So we're probably about, I don't know, eight to ten minutes away from the Canadian border where I grew up. Um, mom, dad, I have two sisters who are younger than me. Um, you know, and it's interesting I never saw alcoholism growing up. There's no alcoholism in my family. You know, my dad has a beer every now and then. My mom probably has five drinks a year, you know. So um, my childhood was pretty normal growing up, pretty middle class, just normal, you know. And um, for me, I, I firmly believe that probably around the age of 13, that's when everything changed. That's when I went from being a happy, go-lucky kid, um, not really thinking about myself very much to basically full of fear, anxiety. That's when the depression came in and I really never felt like I fit in. Um, I just, I don't know. I just constantly started comparing myself to others. And that's when I really sort of started to, I think emotionally shut down a bit and start to notice that something was wrong, you know? And, and I think at that age, like I didn't, you know, I just sat with it because I didn't know, what to do you know like I didn't know I knew it wasn't normal how I felt but it was one of those situations where I just kind of tried to survive you know just I mean go to school and have a few friends but not really I was never able to really build great relationships with people because I was so almost full of self-hatred because I never thought I was good enough you know and I don't know where that really came from. You know, it was something I think that I created, you know, my parents never told me growing up that I wasn't good enough. You know, they always loved me and were wonderful. Um, You know, I think I just started to compare myself to others a lot. And I think that's where some of the, I'm not good enough feelings came in. And um, I don't know, I just never felt comfortable. Like I fit in and, and that's sort of how going through high school, how I felt, you know, Um, never talking about it, you know, never, never addressing it but I think the one interesting thing is is I never drank in high school I feel like I'm one of the weird people who never took a drink in high school um growing up where I did a lot of people drank because you could cross the border and at at 18 you can buy booze um bringing it back across the border wasn't really that difficult I don't believe at the time 
And I don't know, people went and drank on the weekends. Like I didn't really go to parties, like drinking scared me. Like I didn't want to get in trouble. You know, I always felt so like not even, not I, even a sip throughout your, entire I never had school. a, I never had a sip in high school, not wow. one sip, which is, I was me, I, which was bizarre, but I never did. And, and I was around it at times. Definitely. Like I played football and stuff and like, I would hang out with some of those guys and they did. And, um, I, I, I somehow didn't. And, and I think if I did drink in high school, the way I felt about myself, it would have been bad. Like I would have gotten into, I don't know if I, you know, who knows, because I would have drank the way I drank when I got to college and that'll be next. But I would have probably drank to not feel like myself. And I probably, who knows if I'd have gotten in car accidents or uh, who knows what would have happened, but it would have been bad. And um, I remember at just before graduation in high school, I had this period of almost like two months that I couldn't even remember happened. And I was so filled with fear and depression that I went to my parents and I said, I need help. And um, I started seeing a therapist then. And we started talking about all these things and, um, you know, I think, I think a lot of it was, okay, like, this is how I feel now, but once I go away to school, it's going to be different. You know, I'm not going to be in this small town, middle of nowhere kind of place. And I'll find my sort of people to fit in with, you know, and I think that was the kind of thing that I had hoped for. And, um, I went to college and it's funny. I still had those feelings. Right. And I remember going to a party and having that first drink and it was instantly this feeling of, Oh my God, this is what I've been looking for. You know, like this was the secret medicine that I was looking for. Cause instantly I felt better. Instantly. I felt like I fit in instantly. I felt like I could talk to people. Um, I wasn't so full of fear. You know, I wasn't so self-consumed. Um, I could talk to girls. Right. So this made it even better. Um, and really from that drink on, it was basically like, okay, I found the solution to my problems. And it, I never drank like a normal person because, you know, drinking actually was the thing that actually made me feel better. You know, um, it was almost like I used it as, you know, instead of taking a, you know, a depression medication at the time, I would drink booze and that would solve my problems, you know? And I think, it was drink more and more as possible. Um, you know, I, I did the really probably dumb thing and joined a fraternity, right? So when you join a fraternity, you don't drink like normal people. You're not surrounded by people that drink normally. So it was drink as much as possible all the time. Um, to some people, that's not attractive. But to a guy like me, yes, that was exactly how I wanted to be, you know? And it's not always easy to find people that want to drink like you but I found a whole house full of guys that wanted to drink like me. And if I drank the way I drank, it didn't seem abnormal, you know, because everybody else was drinking like I wanted to drink. Now they probably weren't drinking for the same reasons that I wanted to drink, but people were wasted all the time. You know, every night, if I wanted to get drunk, there was somebody to do it with. So that's sort of my phase of high school with not even a sip. So walking into college and then just basically from the time I took a sip to being a full blown alcoholic, you know? Okay. Uh, and then, so what, where does that kind of like go for you at that point? Like, are you doing anything crazy? Are you just kind of just like leaning on drinking every day, all day? Are you getting yourself in any trouble? You know what the weird part is? And I still will never understand how I never 
I, I almost got arrested many times. I've never been in a fight in my life. Um, you know, there's times where I drove and I shouldn't, there was times where I drove home and I'm in the house, in the fraternity house. And there's a cop outside feeling the hood of my car to see if it was warm. Cause somebody told him I was swerving or something. And, the, and as soon as I see that I down a beer and I go, cause he's going to ask me if I've been drinking. And I went out and said, yeah, I just came home and had a beer, you know, like I miss getting arrested by that much or killing somebody, you know, um, I was the kind of person that would get drunk and wander off, you know, like, Oh, let me go hang out with these people and see where that goes. You know, maybe they have more weed or who knows what they have, or these people seem cool. Let's see what happens. Like I, I wasn't a good decision maker, you know, like there was always sort of, oh, there's a party here, but there's might be one over here that's better. So let's kind of go see where that is. You know, there's, there's a lot of times too, where, you know, let's try acid. Let's see how that works. You know, um, it was one of those things where I was kind of open to doing anything at that point. Um, Cause I just thought more was better, you know, um, the way my drinking was, you know, I, I wouldn't, I never had a drug problem, but I, there were definitely drugs that I would try if someone had them, you know, and my inhibitions were, they, they just, I basically was like, if somebody said, you want to try this? I usually always said yes. Um, to pretty much everything. I've never done heroin and that's basically the only thing I've never done, you know? Um, but I, I wasn't, I was very unpredictable to be around. I think the one problem was, is that I was an early blackout drinker and that continued um, until I reached my beginning of sobriety. But, you know, when you have somebody that's a blackout drinker, it's just their action, you know, their actions are just so unpredictable that um, it's, I think it's difficult for others to be around. And I met my wife in college when we were 19. And um, I think at the time I seemed like a really fun guy, you know, she was in a sorority. I was in a fraternity and I was a fun guy to be around, but things might happen when I'm drinking because I'm not the kind of guy that could have three or four beers and go home for the night. It was always, you know, full gas all the time. Let's drink until you pass out. And, you know, I would always, you know, I had a tendency to run my mouth a bit and a tendency if we were at bars, you know, to do that and, yeah, I don't know how by the grace of God nobody ever punched me in the face. You know, that's a it's a it's a it's an absolute miracle. Um, I don't, you know, I think I'm the only one that's 44 years old in the country that's ever punched anybody. But um That's not yeah, a bad it's amazing. Thing. I I it's amazing I didn't get into fights or something else, but it was um yeah, I maybe if you would have been a little bit closer to Boston, maybe you probably yeah. wouldn't be able to say the same thing. Yeah, we went to school in Maine, so maybe it was because they were just nicer people, but um yeah, it was always just chaos, man. It was just unpredictable chaos on what was going to happen. Um, and so you met I, your wife very early into your drinking career. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we did very early. And we've been together ever since. You know, we've been together, I guess, technically almost, I guess, almost 25 years now. And So she was there for pretty much all of your drinking and all of your sobriety. Yes. And you know, the fact she's still here is a miracle in itself, you know, and, <laughs> you know, it's funny because we get to the end of college and all right, now it's time to be a grown up, Right. And she becomes a grown up, and I don't like, I just, I continued, you know, like I was 20 years old, you know, after graduation and 
I didn't, I, you know, I don't think I had the, I don't think I had the awareness that like, now this is a real problem. You know, I think, I think that's the sometimes that sometimes that's the thing with that as this progresses, other people can see it, but I don't think we really notice. I think we're just like, okay, now I drink 12 beers a day, you know, like it's gone from whatever it is to this is where we are now. And um, for me, it just became normal. This is what I do. Yeah. And I can only imagine in college and especially being in a frat, um, you know, every single day, everybody for the most part is pretty much doing the same thing as you. They're doing drugs. They're getting drunk every night. uh, They're getting into maybe a little bit of trouble and then they're going to class the next day. And for a lot of people, that is just a phase. That's a college phase. You know, a lot of these people probably partying in high school. It's nothing serious. They're not alcoholics. They're not addicts. You know, they can somehow, I don't, I still don't understand how people can do this, but you know, they can drink 12 beers and do a few lines of Coke and then, you know, do that for a few years and then come back out to adult life after college and just be completely normal, have, have a family and leave all that partying behind them. I don't know how people can do that, how that can just be a phase for some people. Um, God bless them. But, you know, people like us, that's not just a phase that takes over our personalities that turns into a full blown addiction. Uh, So, you know, around these people, you're probably not going to get called out. No one's going to say, hey, Matt, you're an alcoholic. You probably drank too much last night. You might have an issue. Uh, So when is the first time that anybody, whether it be a family, a friend, when's the first time that anybody said anything to you like, dude, maybe you should take it easy or maybe you're doing this too much or anything at all. So I think it was probably, you know, I think the only person that really has ever even said that to me has been my wife. And I don't, you know, we weren't married at the time, but, um, so we graduate college, we moved to Massachusetts. Um, she's from this area and she ended up getting a job first. So that's kind of why we came here. Um, I mean, it's a beautiful place to live, but so I think, she would see me still drink, you know, to get drunk on a weeknight, right? Like going to work the next day. And, you know, I remember her saying to me, you know, can't you just have one or two? And, and it really made me think, and I, you know, the reality is I didn't want one or two, you know, and it was very difficult for me to, to sit there and think, all right, I'm just going to have one or two because the craving and what I wanted that, because I wanted to feel different. And I think that's the thing. It wasn't, I'm going to have a beer or two to relax. And I think maybe initially that was, but um, it was really because I didn't like the way I felt and and I needed more to kind of get me quickly to that spot of not hating myself and get rid of that anxiety and that depression and fear. And um, because all that anxiety, depression, and fear that I carried from 13 into college it was still there, but almost even worse, you know, I mean, now I look back on it, you know, I'm full of depression, anxiety, and I'm just pouring a depressant down my throat 24 hours a day, you know, and wondering why it's not getting better. Um, And through this whole time, I had been seeing therapists, you know, in college, I saw multiple different therapists, because of the anxiety and depression, you know, I was on and off suicidal for quite a while. And I just hated myself so much. And the one thing that I always failed to do when talking with a therapist is be honest about my drinking, you know, cause I thought that's not the problem. You know, it's, that's just kind of how I deal with some of this, but you know, now I look back years later and go, yeah, nothing was ever getting better. Cause you never sat there and were honest how much you were drinking, 
you know, how was I going to get better when I'm blacking out five nights a week, you know? Um, but yeah, my, my wife was probably the first one to ever really say anything. I think the fortunate thing for me is, is that my family, I don't, I didn't see them very often. So they really never saw me drink that much. And if they did, it was holidays. So if I had a little too much to drink, it was, yeah, it, it was, was normal. There was like, or, a, there was an easy va- excuse for it. Cause they didn't see the Wednesday yeah. night blunder or vacation. Yeah. And that's the thing. Like I was one of those people that, you know, I thought what adults do is they leave the office, they come home and they have a drink and that's normal. And maybe that's normal, but I was having 10 to 15 drinks. So was your that, plan ever going doing. in to just have one or two? Like, did you ever tell yourself when I get home, I'm just going to have a couple or did you already know before the first one that it was never going to stop at just a couple? You know, I rarely, because I knew I couldn't, you know, um, so I would get home before my wife would get home from work and I would already be hammered by the time she would get home, you know, and she always says that it was difficult for her coming home because she never knew what to expect. You know, she never knew what kind of shape I would be in. And I always told her the same thing. It was the same lie every single day. How many did you have? Oh, just a couple. You know, I, I can barely stand up and it's like six o'clock, right? I would get home at like four thirty. I leave the office at like four or something. The you old know, I'm tired. Like, I'm not drunk. Yeah, I'm just really tired. Yeah. But like, yeah, I've only had two and I can barely stand up, right? And you know, you start to hide it and you start to do other things. And um I knew it was getting out of control, but I guess the thing is is I didn't know what alcoholism was, you know, like I just I had never seen it and I, and I guess I didn't realize I was one, you know, I think my wife knew, I think she kept thinking he's going to grow up. He's going to become an adult. Like this isn't, this isn't who he is, you know, like this this can't be who he is. I think, um, you know, and we've talked about it and I think the, um, we're going to have a child part. Ah, that's when he'll stop. You know, like that's when maybe he'll become an adult, you know, but that had the exact opposite effect. So we get married in 2005 and a few years later we have our first child and I'm scared to death. I can barely take, I can barely function. I can barely, barely take care of myself. Right. You know, I am, you know, I'm still mentally screwed up I still hate myself I'm still struggling and drinking out of control and you know most people I know is okay we're having a kid I gotta get my shit together and you know I'm gonna stop smoking I'm gonna you know cut back drinking I'm gonna you know I'm gonna be the best dad ever and see what I can do and you know I was so full of fear it almost put my foot on the gas pedal even more because I, I didn't know what to do so my drinking escalated even more and you know, my in-laws would watch our, our kid during the day. So I would get home from work first and my wife would go over there and pick her up and same thing, you know, they would come home and I'd be half in a blackout useless. You know, I could barely help. Um, I, I, I just, I was all consumed with what I was doing. You know, I was all consumed with my drinking. and Everything was about me. You know, all I thought about all the time was, how am I going to be able to drink the way I want to drink? You know, if we had to go somewhere, I would think, 
I don't know if I want to go because people aren't going to drink like I do, or I'm going to have to drink before, or, you know, I remember vividly, I think my daughter was like two years old and we're on the beach. And this is one of the moments I think I really realized I have a problem. I'm thinking we're on the beach. It's like two in the afternoon. I really want to drink. You know, I'm thinking about how we can end this day at the beach so I can get home and start drinking because that's what I wanted. That's what I'm thinking about. I'm not in the moment in this beautiful place, looking at the beach. I'm thinking about how Matt wants to drink and what he's going to drink, you know? And that was one of those moments that I realized, Holy shit, I got a problem. Like I have a, I have a serious problem. Not I'm going to do anything about it, but that I have a pretty serious problem. And how did, how did that feel? It's awful. You know, it, it was awful that here I am with my little kid and I'm thinking about how much I, I, you know, what I want to drink and how I'd rather be somewhere else, you know, by myself. I did a lot of drinking alone because I started to realize that I couldn't go hang out with somebody and watch a football game and have one or two drinks and drive home. You know, I would drink eight to 10 beers, then be, have to take the risk of driving. Um, you know, I'm just fortunate that I didn't get arrested or kill somebody, you know, and I did a lot you of had dr- that moment at the beach. Um, I was probably about 32 years old. Okay. Pretty, pretty, pretty soon after pretty soon before I got sober and, you know, it, it really made me take a look that I don't have the ability to be present because I'm thinking about, um, everything. I'm constantly thinking about booze. You know, I, I always tell this story that I woke up every, my, every day was the same for me. I woke up hungover. I'd look at my wife. I would say I was sorry. I would go into the office feeling like shit. 10 o'clock after some coffee, you start to feel a little bit better. You know, I'd say, I'm not going to drink today. By about noon, you feel better. And then I'm stopping at the liquor store on the way home. And the cycle just repeats over and over and over again. And it was, you know, we talk about drinking without our permission, right? It's just, it just in the program, we always sometimes talk about that, that booze has just taken over. And um, that's exactly, that's, that was exactly my life. Like I, I almost didn't want to do it, but it was just, it was just happening. Like it was just, this is who I was. Um I remember one point pretty soon before I got sober, I, I was looking in the mirror and it was um, looking at somebody that I didn't recognize, but also I looked at myself and I said, you're a drunk. Like, that's who you are. You know, just like people run, just like people, you know, collect stamps. That's what they do as a hobby. You're a drunk. Like, that's who you are, you know? Um, and at some point, I just accepted it. You know, we talk about the program of acceptance. Like it, I accepted that I was a drunk, not that I was going to do anything about it, but I accepted like, this is who I am. This is who God made. For some reason, I felt like this is who God created me to be is this sad, depressed person full of anxiety. Who's just drinking to kill his pain. And, um, you know, as we got closer to the end of my drinking, you know, my thoughts were, it was basically, I was trying to kill myself with booze. You know, I wanted to commit suicide very badly. And, but 
I wanted to make sure my family would get life insurance money and all that. So it was basically slow motion suicide with alcohol. That's what I was doing. Um, I thought if I had passed away, my wife could marry somebody better, richer, that could treat her better than I could. My daughter would have a better father than just drunk. And, you know, those were my thoughts at the end. You know, I, I thought I didn't think I'd live to see 40 years old. And that was my goal was to not see 40. And that's how I felt at you know, 33, which is, you know, you, to think about it, it's the most lonely, dark place I've ever been. And, but to me, that's what seemed like the best option. And I really thought it was the best option for my family. Um, I didn't have the balls to kill myself any other way. So I thought by the amount I'm drinking, the way I'm going, this will take care of itself. That's, I can definitely relate to that because I know you get to that like really lonely moment um, and you're depressed. And, you know, I, I used to have, I've, I've said this a bunch of times too, you know, the thought has always crossed my mind too. Like, you know, maybe, maybe the place, this place is better without me. My family may be better without me, but you know, the same thing, they got to get that life insurance check. And, you know, I never like wanted to like necessarily like commit suicide, but you know, I've said too, there's plenty of times where I'm just driving home in a thunderstorm too. And I'm like, all right, well, maybe if something goes wrong here while I'm driving, like I'm okay with that. This is, it's just, it's God's plan. You know, it was, it was an accident. My family will get the check. My, they'll all be taken care of. And it is what it is. Like, this is just whatever. So like, I never necessarily wanted to do it, but I was like, all right, like if, if it happens this way, then it is what it is as well. And so like, I can definitely relate to that, too, because you just fall in that deep, dark depression. You fall in that hole and you don't know what to do. And, you know, you don't know how to get out of it. Um, so I, I just I didn't want to feel this way anymore. You know, exactly. it's all those years of I didn't know what to do, you know, and I've been seeing a therapist a lot throughout this. And like. I never talked to her about booze because I knew if I did, she'd tell me I had to stop, you know, and but I would keep paying the copay to go see the therapist to wonder why my life's not getting any better as I have a 30 pack of Miller light sitting in the trunk, you know, like I did all the things that I thought would make me better, but I, I did it on the surface, right? Like I never really dug in and actually did any of the work. And it, it amazes me what booze can do to you. You know, it amazes me that, you know, the place it, you know, it's funny when you can sit and you're 18 years old and you can have fun with your buddies. And then all those years later, you're sitting in the basement, hoping you'll drink enough to die. You know, it, but that's where it was. That's where it took me. Um, and I only say that because that's my reality. That's the truth. And maybe some people can understand what that's like. And, um, I'm sure a lot, you know, I hear this podcast can relate for sure. I hear it's a disease of isolation, you know, and we want to be alone so we can do the things that we want to do. And here I am sitting there just, you know, asking God, hopefully I won't wake up the next day. Um, it, yeah, it, it's just, it, it's difficult sometimes to look back and just see that's where it was, you know, cause I can still kind of feel, you know, I can look back in my mind and see myself sitting there and uh, yeah, it's a miracle. I'm, it's, you know, it's a miracle I'm here today. I say that a lot, but it's, I wasn't supposed to be here for, I, I hear you on that now based off of, and I could be wrong here, but based off of, you know, 
some of these timelines you're giving us and how old you are with uh, this part of the story, it sounds like your story might be a little bit different than a lot of people as well. And it doesn't sound like there's, you know, a bunch of rehab stints followed by relapses and, you know, failed attempts and whatnot or any anything along those lines, which, you know, there's nothing wrong with that's that's a part of life. Uh, it's a part of the process for a lot of people. Uh, and it's it's just it really is. It's a part of a lot of people's recovery and it is what it is. Uh, but for you, that doesn't necessarily sound like it's the case. And again, I could be wrong here, but when, so lead us up into that moment where you have the realization and, and what do you do when you decide enough is enough and how do you approach there? Sure. So I had my last drink on March 24th, 2013. And, um, I was, I was hammered. I was probably pretty close to a blackout and we had, a. Uh, young daughter at the time um she was three years old and i Is looked at my your wife. only kid or do you have two kids now at that point uh we have two kids we had another child in sobriety um so i look at my wife and it was the and my wife's always like the glass half full you know just happy wonderful person and very positive and and i just happened to look at her um and it was the face of somebody that had been destroyed. It wasn't sadness. It was brokenness, I guess I would say. Um, and this is somebody, you know, we'd been together a long time at that point, you know, and this wasn't what her life was supposed to be married to an alcoholic who basically was a ghost in the house, you know, other than contributing to bills, it was nothing else. And just bringing chaos and depression and sadness and, I just looked at her and she basically said, that's it. You know, that's enough. And some, I, I still remember the look on her face that day because it was just, I don't think I've ever seen anybody look like that before. Um, she didn't cry because I don't think she had anything left. And I said, all right, I'm going to stop drinking. So March 25th, 2013. Had you ever said that to her before? Day. No. Okay. Never. Because it, it would have been, I might have said I should, but I never said I was. You never said to. you were going to. Um, okay. It's one of those moments where I almost instantly sobered up. And it was it was sort of like a bomb went off and I could see all the destruction I had caused. You know, like I, when you see that you've destroyed a person and you're looking at it and you're looking at it, it just, it just was so real at that moment, seeing what I had done to someone. And, um, so I'm like, I'll stop. And I didn't know anything about Alcoholics Anonymous, but I knew nothing about 12 step. I knew nothing about getting sober. So I'm like, I'll just stop. So I went from almost being a daily blackout drinker to laying on the couch, shaking for like two or three days, sweating and not like I should have gone to rehab or a detox or something. I didn't know. I didn't know anything. Um, so I did the first, I did the first about five and a half or six months or so on my own, you know, all right, I'm going to stop drinking and this is how I'm going to do it. I just won't drink. And I was just as miserable not drinking as I was when I was drinking because now I didn't have anything. All those anxieties and fears were back full time, 24 hours a day, and I had nothing to stop them. And I was still going to therapy and I admitted to my therapist, okay, now I have to be honest with you. 
that I'm an alcoholic and I've got a problem. She goes, yeah, I know. I've been waiting for you to say this for years. So we started to make some headway, but it wasn't working. Like being a dry drunk is, it's awful. I, I wouldn't wish that upon anybody that um, doesn't have a program or something or some sort of way they can work on their recovery. And I was miserable. You know, I'd go to a restaurant and I'd see people drinking and I would just get so pissed because I couldn't do it. You know, I didn't, I didn't realize this was not only a physical problem, but an emotional and spiritual one as well. And I finally got, so I, in, in March was my sobriety date. And I got to the point in August of that year where I was just fed up and I was basically sitting in front of a liquor store and I'm like, I'm either going to drink or die or I've got to get some help. I got to, I've got to do something. And I just pulled up my phone, Googled AA, there's a meeting down the street. And I went to that meeting that night and, uh, that's where everything completely changed for me because first of all, with my anxiety and fear, the, the fact that I even could walk into a room full of 60 to 80 people is still mind boggling to me that I was able to do that. And I really believe that that was the grace of God that allowed me to do that. And I remember that meeting. I remember the speaker. I remember all the people next to me still. And I walked in and I sat in the front row because I thought if I sat in the front row, then if for some reason I talked, nobody could turn around and look at me. They'd only see the back of my head. And I didn't understand because people were happy and people were laughing. You know, it, it wasn't my only understanding of what a 12 step program was. It's what I saw in movies or TV that all looked depressed and homeless people. And it, 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 it's not reality. Right. And I, I thought, okay, this, I mean, I live in the sort of the affluent suburbs and like, all right, like these people seem normal and, for some reason it was a newcomer meeting and I raised my hand and I said, uh, my name's Matt. I'm an alcoholic. And, and I was crying and instantly that weight I'd been carrying on my shoulders for, I don't know, 20 or so years finally came off. And I think that's where everything changed. That's that miserableness of being an alcoholic and a dry drunk and all those things finally started to shut off. And I, finally felt like it was going to be okay. Had you said to anybody prior other, other than your therapist and your wife, did anybody else know in that first four or five months that you were an alcoholic and that you were trying to be sober? I had told a few people, I told my family, um, I told a couple friends that I had stopped drinking. And were you using the word alcoholic or were you just saying I'm not drinking? I just said I'm not drinking. Okay. And some people said, it's a good idea. You know, they didn't, anybody that knew me, anybody that saw me drink knew I didn't drink normally. So, and I think that point, my family, you know, we'd go on a week long vacation and I'm drunk seven days of those, right? Like it, it became something they would see. It was, I would black out. I would pass out when I was with my parents, you know, like things that it's nothing that you want to come and, you know, they drive from Vermont to Massachusetts and spend Thanksgiving with us. And I'm drunk most of the time. That's, that's not what they want to see. And I think as they see me get older, it's not getting better. And it wasn't when I told people that I had a pro that I had stopped drinking, it wasn't a mystery to them. Why, you know, once I, 
once I started to go to meetings and stuff like that, and I understood some of this, I talked about it more with them and they completely understood, but yeah, nobody, nobody said to me when I stopped drinking, are you sure, you know, do, are you sure that you don't, are you sure that, you know, I don't think you got a problem. So it was anybody that knew me knew I did have a problem. Gotcha. Gotcha. Uh, so what is it, uh, after you start going to meetings then, uh, did you start doing some of that stuff they tell you in the beginning? Did you get a sponsor? Did you did you try the ninety and ninety? What it, what was it like after your first meeting? How did you approach? Yeah, them? so we have really good um, we have really good AA on the South Shore of the South Shore of Boston. So I did probably ninety and ninety, but some days I did double meetings. So I didn't do one every day, but some days I did doubles, and I literally. I was at the point where I just did what they told me. I didn't want to, I did what they told me because I didn't want to go back to where I was, you know? So I did the, um, I got a sponsor. I asked for help. My, my first sponsor in the program who I had for about a year and a half, you know, he told me every meeting I go to, to get somebody, somebody different phone number. And for me, somebody with anxiety that didn't really want to talk to people. I had to go talk to people and ask for their phone number, you know, so that was always difficult. Um, and I just went, you know, I went to meetings, I listened and I tried to talk at every meeting I could. So people would get to know me and it was difficult. You know, I, I've always had trouble making friendships and relationships just probably cause I'm full of anxiety and other things. But in AA, I actually was able to start doing that. I was able to start like putting my hand out and talking to people and, and trusting people, you know, nobody wanted anything from me. They just wanted to help me. And I really just did what the old, old timers told me to do, you know, and, and that's what I tell people to do. And that's what I still do. I, I, I mean, ask for help, go to meetings and, you know, try to work with other people it's very simple, you know, and that's something that I could grasp and do sometimes just show up and sit there and be quiet and have a cup of coffee. If that's all I could do, you know, and I was very fortunate. I went to a bunch of different meetings and, you know, we have a men's meeting here, which I've gone to ever since. And we really, I don't know. Like I, I just, there was a lot of good sobriety and a lot of good men that were here um, that are still here that I was able to kind of see what they did and sort of acted like them. You know, I always think this is a program of attraction and, you know, we see people, the kind of sobriety we want. And if we want it, we have to ask them how they do it. And that's what I was able to do is, is to see how they did it because, you know, you can hear some people talk with 30 years of sobriety. You wouldn't want that for all the money in the world, you know, whatever they have. <laughs> so for me, it was really getting out of my comfort zone and, asking people, how do I do this? You know, how do I, you know, can you take me through the steps? You know, I, doing a four step for me was, you know, I bought that notebook and I had that notebook sit there a long time before I was able to put pen to paper and actually write this stuff down. And I don't know why I was so scared. You know, I, I feel like a lot of people are, are scared to do it, but once I wrote down all my fears, and resentments and all that stuff, it just, it really was able to catapult me forward. You know, I didn't have to hang on to this stuff anymore. And somebody told me, look, man, 
you know, you think you're hiding this from people, but God already knows, you know, it's not, it was like, I was writing it and like with an arm over the book. So God wouldn't see me write it down. It was like, he already knows, man, like, it's okay. Like, you don't have to keep carrying this rock around anymore. Like, let's work on this and let's do this. And yeah, my first sponsor took me through the steps and uh, I ended up getting a new sponsor probably a year and a half in, but um, that guy's been my sponsor ever since. So I've been very fortunate to, to always have really, really good people around me in the program. That's amazing. Uh, how was, how did your wife respond when she saw you go into meetings and, you know, taking, taking it pretty serious at that point? It's one of those things I try to tell us to everybody, man, you're not going to get, you know, people aren't going to trust you overnight because now here I am, I'm going out weeknights you know, or, or weekends, whatever it is. I'm going out at night, hanging out with people she doesn't know. And I'm saying, trust me, this is where I'm going to be, you know? And it was sort of, okay, what time are you going to be home? You know? All right. The meeting ends at eight. I'll be home at like eight 15. You know what I mean? And she had no reason to trust me. I had lied to her for years about my drinking and everything else. And now I'm going to go out and do this. But I think she realized how miserable I was not drinking and being a dry drunk. So I think there was, she didn't know anything about the program either. Um, but it was, it was one of those things where incrementally I start to get better. Like I start to feel better. My attitude changes the way I start to see things change. Um, because I, and I always think this, like I can't talk to my wife about how I feel when it comes to certain things, because she doesn't look at the way, th- way the world I do. She's not an alcoholic. You know, I can talk to my sponsor and he understands. But if I talk to my wife about certain things, she just has no idea how I think about certain things. She, you know, it's, you know, she'll look at me sometimes be like, how can you think like that? And I go, it's just who I am. You know, it's just the way sort of I look at things. And I think I put too much on her by trying to talk about all my feelings and all that stuff in the beginning with her. And I quit drinking because she couldn't understand it. And that's what I realized when I started to make friends in the program is that some of that stuff needs to go with these guys because they can understand it. These men and women can understand how I think, you know, trying to explain to a non-alcoholic how I think that's almost impossible because a normal person doesn't think like we do, I guess is kind of how I look at it. So, but I think the other thing too, is she instantly saw me doing something that I never really had ever done before. And that's to have actual friendships, you know, um, and I think that's where she really thought, like, this is a good thing. Like, he's not alone anymore. You know, like, he doesn't have to try to figure out this problem with booze alone. Um, because she couldn't help me. And really, my therapist at the time, early in recovery, said, look, I'll be honest with you. You're getting more from your 12-step group than you're getting from me. So if you want to come back, that's fine. But I would just continue to do that. And that's basically what I've done. Nice. Nice. Not often you, not often you hear that, uh, from the people that are getting the money. So, uh, yeah, that's interesting. We can, we can pay a copay or we can just throw a dollar in the basket. Uh, yeah, (laughs) I like this way better. That's you get a lot of meetings for the price of one therapy visit. Um, so, uh, when does, uh, when does running come in? It doesn't sound like I haven't heard anything with running. I don't know if you were like into it a little bit before, when, when do you get out no. for your first run? So I never ran a step until a year into recovery, year into sobriety. So 2014, my wife's like, you know what? 
you should do something else for yourself. Like, so I had been going to meetings for a while then and just celebrating my first anniversary. And she's like, you should start to run. And I'm like, I don't know, man. And I, I really, to me, running was not, you know, I did it in like high school playing sports, but it was part of practice. You know, it wasn't, I mean, I run a little bit to get in shape for football and stuff like that, but it wasn't, I wasn't running really for fun. So I, I mean, I literally started my running by going a half mile around the block like around our circle where we live and in like basketball shorts and like, a, you know, a cotton t-shirt and the one pair of sneakers I had. And I couldn't run a half mile. You know, I was like mid thirties and I couldn't run a half mile. And I'm thinking to myself, Jesus, I am, this isn't good, but I stuck with it. And I would do a half mile the next day and a half mile. And, um, then I would go to a mile or two miles and I finally signed up for my first 5k that May. So I'd started running in March and I signed up in May. And for me running a 5k was, I was more, I was just as nervous if I was going to go run a hundred mile race at that point. Like I, I thought running a 5k was just, Oh my God, my life's changed. I'm sober. I'm going to go run three miles in a race with a bib on and get a medal at the end. I mean, this was, you know, the biggest thing I'd ever done, but that's sort of how my running started you know my wife gave me the suggestion she had run in high school a little bit college and um i think she knew she knew i needed to do something else like physically for myself i was working on the mental part and all the other stuff but yeah she's the sort of catalyst that said hey why don't you do this and from there on it was uh it's just something that i loved like even running a half mile seemed to just bring me a little bit of peace, you know, calm my mind a little bit. And it's something I really enjoyed. I would have never thought that, you know, running a 5k would lead to running hundred mile races that would have never even crossed my mind at the time. But yeah. And a year into sobriety, that's when I took my first sort of real running steps. How'd you feel at the end of your first 5k? Dude, like I was on top of the world. It, it's one of those things when you, I think when we have our moments in recovery that it's one of those where I'm like, you know, my wife, my daughter at the end. And it was like, holy shit, I can't believe this is my life. You know, I, I, it's one of those where you look back quickly and be like, you know, two years ago, you know, or a year and a half ago, I was hoping to die with booze. And here I am now. And it's one of those where I actually felt proud of myself. Like I liked myself. Like I, I looked at myself. I was like, you can do hard shit. Like you can do, you know, like you've told yourself for 20 years that you're not worth anything and that you have no value. And, and then here you are, you actually did something, you trained for it and you worked hard at it and did it. And that's a lot of what running has brought me. You know, I still struggle at times with um, the way I view myself, but running has always kind of proven to me that I can do hard things, you know, and instantly like a good alcoholic, you know, I signed up for another 5k like two weeks later and then <laughs> another 5k right after that. And because I really liked how it made me feel like I really, I'm like, I like this. You remember you know, I was never on your first 5k. Were you trying to get any faster? No, it, I think my first 5K seriously was probably, I think it was like 32 minutes. So it was not fast um, by any stretch of the imagination. And each time I did it, I got 30 seconds, 45 seconds faster. So I kept getting a little bit. And uh, 
Hey, that's, you that's know, progress. You know how many people right now would like give anything to get 30 seconds off of their 5k time? Cause it's such a yeah. short distance taking 30 seconds yep. off, especially the faster you get, the harder it is to take a few seconds off on those short distances. Yeah, man. It's funny how I, I think back now and it kind of makes me laugh how scared to death I was to run three miles in a race though. You know, like it was a, it was yeah. just a local town race, but it, it just, it, I, I don't know if I was scared of failure or just whatever it was, but it was so, to me, it was just this, this big thing. And, you know, that race just was the first of so many that I've been able to do. Now I do have reason to believe that uh, your distances get quite longer than 5k. So uh, how, how does, how does that progress for you? Yeah. So instantly, so after I do a couple five K's and a 10 K, I think, all right. So now I start doing like watching YouTube videos and going online and checking races, and race plans. Use I'm those like, good right. old so alcoholic found... addictive tendencies for good now. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And it was, and it was okay. So I found a half marathon that ended at Plymouth rock. So I'm like, this will be cool. And so I signed up for that half marathon. And to me, I'm like, holy shit, how am I going to be able to do this? 13 miles. Like it just was 13.1 you, know, you know we can't forget yeah, the point especially when we're talking one. to a stranger <laughs> yeah it was like it was like 95 degrees in september and and i remember running that race and it was hot and i was just super slow but i finished it and i just kept thinking how much i really enjoyed this like i really i think one of the part that i liked about it it's something that i sort of always talk about is i've craved being a part of a community my whole life. Like I've never felt part of anything. And I found that in Alcoholics Anonymous, but I also found that running. And regardless if you're fast or slow or whatever it is, you're around other people. And it's not even the fact that you're talking to them. You're just with them. And, and I remember finishing that race and my wife and my daughter was there at the time. And it was just doing things that I just thought were completely impossible. You know, it just, and doing them with other people, um, and feeling included. And I felt like I belonged. And as soon as that race was over, I thought, okay, now it's time to sign up for a marathon. So growing up in Vermont, I wanted to do the Vermont marathon. So I signed up and I ran the Vermont marathon in, um, May of 2015. Once again, it, it was one of those things that I remember my parents were there. My sister was there. My wife was there. Um, with our daughter and i remember the last couple miles go along lake champlain and we're run and i'm running down and i'm just crying because i can't but once again i can't believe this is my life like i can't believe here i am a sober man my family's here cheering me on i'm finishing a marathon something i never thought was even humanly possible and i'm alive you know like i you know, the promises start to come true. And, you know, I think sometimes the changes sort of happen gradually. We don't notice them as quick. Um, you know, and my daughter, you know, she held my hand and we crossed the finish line together. And it just, it's those reminders of how different our life is. You know, when we start to take control back and actually, you know, start, you know, working towards something positive and really putting um, 
some emphasis on our value of ourself. And so almost as soon as that race is over, I say to my wife, I think I can go further. And I found a 50K in Maine. And uh, I believe it was that early October. And I ran that 50K in 2015. And once again, my daughter crossed the finish line with me. I was dead last. I didn't know it at the time. I was dead last because there was also a 50 miler going on. So there was other people out there. And once again, it was one of those moments of, holy shit, I can't believe this is my life. I just ran an ultra marathon. Now I'm, I'm assuming that the, uh, the 50 K since it also has a 50 miler, I'm assuming that's on a trail, but had everything prior to that point all been on the road. Yeah. Everything had been on the road. And, um, so this is your first time this on a trail was, this, as well. Yeah. This was like half trail, half road. And, and I like the part, you know, I, it's one of those things where now it's, you know, I, I've been running trails for so long that, um, I like being, you know, out running in the woods alone. Like it just, it's so much more peaceful. Um, it terrifies it's just, me. It terrifies me. It's, <laughs> it's not even the distance that scares me as much as being out there. My, my ankles are like Gumby. They just like roll. I step on a yeah. walnut. I've, I've stepped on a walnut and broke my ankle last October. Just And I'm like, I'm terrified on like the technical part of the, the trails. It just, it, it terrifies me. Like, I'm just like, it took oh, me man. getting, it took me getting used to falling. Um, I still fall a lot because I have the tendency to sort of daydream a bit and not look down. And next thing I know I'm on the ground, but it's just different. You know, I, I ran trails this morning and I'm always just so grateful to be out there. Cause I always feel alone out there kind of by myself. And it's just, it's so nice. And, you know, after I ran that 50 K it was just, I looked for the next one, you know, and the next one. And it was in new England. We have, um, we don't have a lot of races, but we have enough, you know, that are manageable to where I can find a 50 K every now and then. And, you know, I really, I really sort of just found this other community, you know, so I had my sort of recovery community. Then I was starting to build my running community. And I just, for me, I just like being around these people, especially these crazy ultra people. And I started to realize that there's a lot of people in this ultra world that are just like me that are in recovery, you know, that are addicts and alcoholics, or they might suffer from eating disorder or anxiety, depression, whatever it is. But I met so many people in this world that I would talk to on the trail during a race, you know, and we'd end up talking recovery, sobriety. Um, you know, I think the distance sometimes beats you down a lot and opens you up emotionally that people start to share stories with each other. And I also think with the, you know, as the distance grows, I think your, your why or your reason for doing it um, gets bigger. And I think people like to talk about that. And I've always really enjoyed that part of the sport. You know, I've run some marathons and never had those conversations, but I've really found them in the ultra world and on the trail. I could, I could see that as well, because where, although the, the pain and the suffering on an ultra is just as bad because of how long you're out there, I could imagine, and I'm, I'm just, you know, making assumptions here because I've never done it, but I could imagine that the, it gives you also more time to talk to people and, you know, get to know people or even catch up with people and whatnot, because 
you're not going at a faster pace. So you can have the ability to talk yeah. to people, you know, the, the, the energy aspect is way different. It's a matter of, you know, continuing to stay fueled and make sure you're getting calories in and keep an eye out to make sure you don't step on that rock or that branch that's sticking out. So you don't bust your ankle or, you know, maybe whatever, depending on where you're at, maybe you got to watch out for wildlife or whatever the case may be. Um, but it's not like a road marathon where everybody is trying to go as fast as they possibly can for right. that particular distance and whatnot, you know, and it's, it, everybody's just trying not to get bottlenecked at the water station and they're trying not to it. So I, I could see that too, because although I go out on a lot of runs and I talk to people on training runs, I've never, ever, ever found myself talking to anyone in a race. Cause I've only ever done road races. The length of a, the, the, I think the longest conversation I've ever had with someone out on a road race is probably nice tattoo, you know, when, mm -hmm. or uh, someone actually saw my serenity prayer at a marathon and, you know, shouted i'm friends with bill w2 but then even they kept moving and kept booking and it is what it is so i can definitely understand what you mean there and that's one of the things i look forward to when i do eventually get into longer distances is being able to communicate and enjoy people a lot more even in the race aspect and and be able to kind of get that that bond because as you can see you know i'm a talker and i love people so i i look forward to that yeah. when i get into that distance as well no, it's, it's just such a wonderful community and it's, it's what keeps me coming back to races. You know, I like, or volunteering at races or now I'm a race director and all these things where it's just, I just like being around these people, you know, I really do. And, um, it's one of the most, you know, similar to the 12 step program. Nobody cares who you are. We got people from every different background, race, religion, economic, um, situation, I, and I think that's part of the trail and ultra world too, man. I, who knows who's out there, you know, nobody, and the other two, nobody's talking about time. You know, it's not like marathon and triathlon, you know, I finish a hundred mile or nobody says how, you know, what time did you do it in? It's funny, you know, but you finish a marathon, everybody says, so what was your time? You know, it, it's just a different experience. And I think it's more laid back. I think it's more chill, obviously, but it's just, um, yeah, I think it just lends itself to a different kind of person. Yeah, I feel like, well, and again, here, I, I can't stress this enough. I'm just making assumptions here. But, you know, I feel like when you do 100, you know, you'll say, all right, I finished the, you know, whatever, the the Badger race, you know, because I'm pretty sure you're in the 10 Junk Miles community. So, you yeah. know, you just you just say, you know, I finished, I finished Scott's race. All right, cool. Like you said, no one's going to ask you the time because they probably already know all right, you know, it's, it's got a 24 hour cutoff or a 30 hour cutoff. And it's like, all right, well, I know if he finished, he finished it in less than 30 hours. Cause he finished. So, you know, I don't need to know that it was 28 hours and 43 minutes. I know it was less than 30 hours. So good job on finishing. Yeah. And so I, I could, I could definitely see that. Um, when, when did you uh, get in the, the 10 junk miles community? Cause I follow, I follow chronologically. Uh, so I'm still back in 2020 when, when I'm listening to 10 Junk Miles podcast. Oh, but like, so, I've heard your name a few times, though. Yeah, so so long ago. Um, oh, man, so 2016, maybe? I'm trying to think if I remember right. Probably 2016. And Am I crazy it's for funny. thinking you did a long run episode with him? 
I didn't do a long run. I've done, I've been on a bunch of episodes and my wife and I did one after our last, last year. Um, like on gang shows? I've been on, we did a gang show, my wife and I, after the, after our second Badger finished, cause we were in Chicago Nice. and I've been on a few shows. My wife's done, I think meet the listener once. Um, I did like the individual, like half hour thing before. Um, yeah. So I really got to know Scott, um, because of our Facebook group, you know, um, and I was listening to the show and I listened to the show early. I mean, when I first got in, started running ultras, I was looking for anything. Right. And whether it's on YouTube, you know, I think at the time there was like ginger runner out there watching him and, uh, uh and podcasts, you know, and I started listening to 10 drunk miles and here I hear a guy talking about, I'm a normal guy. I run ultras and I'm also sober. And I said, Holy shit, this is perfect. Right. That's where he got and, me too. <laughs> and I and I reached out to Scott and I was able to develop a friendship with him and we were actually at his house in 2018 I was out there for the marathon in Chicago my wife and I he invited us over to his house and we're having pizza with him and um, Holly and some other people from the show and and Trayson was there you know the one that's won wow. Western States 13 times uh Eric Sensen, legend, the ultra right? runner was there yeah you were in and, the presence uh, of legend yeah the owner of squirrels nut butter was there and we're chatting we're chatting and we're talking about running ultras and you know and Trayson's telling my wife and I yeah you can run hundreds no problem and Scott was like you know so I have something coming up maybe so don't sign up for anything and then the badger race comes up and I was like, look, if I'm going to run my first hundred, you know, I want to do it with Scott's race because to me, getting the buckle handed to me from another, another sober guy just makes getting my first buckle from another sober guy just makes that even sweeter. Right. If I can do it. And I hear you. You know, leading up to that hundred miler, I, to say I was scared to death was not even. So during this time, my wife starts running. Also, uh, we had had our second child, and she's seen that I've liked running, and she used to run in college and high school. So she starts running again, and instantly, she's a normal person, but really likes it, and instantly sort of jumps into the ultra world as well after running a couple marathons. And we we did our first hundred at the Badger, we ran it together, which was very organic. We didn't decide to do that. It just sort of happened. And it was one of the best experiences of my life. You know, it, we worked with each other, we got through it. We had different highs and lows. And there was one point that I like two in the morning, I'm sort of freaking out, sort of having an anxiety attack, throwing up. I, food wasn't sitting well with me. And I'm like, I'm never going to finish this. Like, I don't belong here. I like, I'm in way over my head. Like I'm trying to pretend I'm something I'm not, you know, all those insecurities coming back, you know, I'm at like mile 70 or whatever. And she looks at me and basically says, look, if you can get sober, you can run a hundred miles. And, you know, she's like, you've done a lot more hard things than this. Getting sober was a lot harder. And now that, that, that was sort of what I needed to hear. And, um, we are, we are able to cross the finish line together. And the fact that we ran a hundred miles together, we were still married. Um, I was 40 years old. I thought I'd be dead by then. And here I am finishing a hundred miles with my wife who's still with me and stuck with me the whole time. 
and a sober guy's handing me my first buckle was one of those experiences that, you know, I, I can't put into words what it felt like because it was just so many things compounded together that should not have happened. You know, it, it, it was, you know, I, it's one of those moments in life you wish you could relive because it was so wonderful, you know, and I, and I can think about it with such fond memory that I, I look at pictures and I go, I still can't believe that happened. I love that so much. And, you know, I've, I've never met Scott, but I, just like you, I found the podcast. I think the podcast was suggested to me by my run coach said she listened to 10 junk miles and she didn't even bring up the fact that like the host was sober. I think I just like, when I was interviewing her on here, I think I just asked her what podcast she likes to listen to or whatever the case may be. And that was just one of the ones that she said. And so I started following, like I listened to a, a, one or two episodes um and i same thing i heard scott say he's an alcoholic and i kept listening and you know and it, i just i immediately got hooked and i reached out to him i had him on this podcast as a guest and you know i, I he told me if i'm ever in chicago to drop in for a gang show and you know if i'm ever out there i would love to be on there and you know he just he seems like a really a really good dude with with great sobriety and you know, I, I would love I would love to run one of his races if I'm, if I'm ever in that area as well. Uh, but so, yeah, I it, he seems really cool. I actually just called the uh, I was just telling Tim, I just called the uh, the bonk line for the first time ever. Nice. Um, and it was only it was only a 14 mile run, uh, but it was in the humidity. And it was at the time it was my longest run after breaking my ankle last year. So. Uh, you know, overweight and out of shape. So the 14 mile run felt harder than 20 mile runs I've done in the past. Uh, but it was, uh, it was the first time I ever called in and uh, dropped quite a few F-bombs, I'm pretty sure. And, you know, I was miserable, but it was, uh, it was fun. Um, so uh, what is, is that the longest race that you've done to date is a hundred, a hundred? Yeah, I've done 600 milers. Um, that's the longest I have some to clarify. You did. You mean like six individual 100s. You didn't mean like, yes, I've done six saying, individual 100 miles. Saying, yeah. I'm not sure. I don't know anybody that's done a 600 mile. I was about to say, <laughs> no, no, no. this, this podcast was about to get a lot longer. You could have to yeah. walk us no, through no, no, 600. No, no. Yeah. <laughs> no, there's, I sort of in the back of my mind, I sort of have the ambition to do a 200 or something like that. But, um, yeah, we ended up going back and doing the badger again the year after, um, and I've done ghost train 100 twice. And I did uh hamster wheel, which is a 30 hour, but we did a hundred and I did Vermont 100 this year, which was beyond difficult. Had like 17,000 feet of elevation gain, which is, I live by the ocean. So that made it quite difficult. And um, I have another hundred in a few weeks coming up. So um, it's insane. They just become like, I, you're running, you're running hundreds like you did, like you ran five Ks yeah. eight years ago. It's funny. I like, I like the 50 mile, 50 K hundred. I like the long distance because especially the hundred, because it just beats the shit out of you. And just, it just kind of strips you emotionally raw and you sort of, you work through a bunch of problems, you know, but you also, for me, I always end up going to some sort of dark place, but I get through it, you know, and I think sometimes I have to remind myself I can get through those things, 
you know, because sometimes during a hundred, when you've had the crap beat out of you, you're climbing another hill and it's hot out or it's in three in the morning and you're tired. And it's a reminder that we can do hard things. You know, I think I, my, my whole life, I sold myself short, you know, I didn't think I could do anything hard. You know, I never believed in myself. Um, I believed other people could do things, but then I never believed I could. And I have learned not only getting sober first, which is the most important thing is that I'm a hell of a lot stronger than I think I am, but to be able to get through some of these races that I'm still strong enough to get through them. And, um, it sort of, it, it reminds me, um, not to sell myself short, you know, it reminds me that I can do these things. And, um, I always say if I could bottle up what it feels like to finish a hundred mile race and sell it, I'd be the richest guy in the world. It just feels awesome, man. You know, and that's why I keep doing it. And, uh, I get to, I get to also spend a lot of time with people out there, meet a lot of different people. It's interesting how many sober people I meet out there that I don't know. I could only imagine how many, and how many friends I've made or just people telling me their stories about losing a kid or, you know, time in the military or just so many conversations you know i i just you know for somebody when i was drinking i was so isolated and alone had no relationships with anyone that now i i look forward to talking you know i go out of my way to talk to people like why don't my way to try to make people feel welcome and like they belong there you know i'm not fast so it takes me a long time to finish these races but i i just I'm, you know, I'm just very fortunate that I'm able to do it. And it just, I don't know. I almost feel like doing them and working through it emotionally and mentally and physically, it just makes me such a better person. Like it just is the reminder that I can do these things. You don't, I mean, you can, you can say that you're not fast, but you're an absolute savage to be able to finish, you know, distances like that. Cause to the, to the person who doesn't really know any better and they're like, Oh, well you I can run a 5k this and so-and-so pace. I'm like, yeah, well, whatever. Maybe it takes me this long to run a 5k, but I can run like 35 Ks back to back. Like, can you do that though? Right. And then it's like, yeah, let's, let's yeah. talk then. Like, you know, I'm not trying to flex on you, but if you want to bring things up, <laughs> we can, we can talk about it. <laughs> it, uh, it reminds me of, uh, I was listening to, I don't know if it was an episode of 10 junk miles, but I was listening to an episode where they were talking about like an ultra and he's like, I never really worry about what other people are doing, but he's like, when I'm out there training and I'm out on like a 20 or 30 mile run, he's like, when somebody passes me and they're running and they kind of like give that look back, like I just passed you. He's like, I wish I could tell them like, yeah, like you're on mile three and I'm on mile 30 though. Like <laughs> just keep that in, keep that in mind. But it is, it is what it is. You just got to kind of, you know, it's kind of like what they, what they tell us in AA, you know what I mean? I just, I got to keep my side of the street clean and you know, just right. focus, focus on me a little bit. Um, also, when you're when you do get ready to do a 200, just something to keep in mind. I know it's a it's a big jump, but if you decide after 200 or if you can make it to 240, uh, I know you'd like to get medals from sober people. Moab, if you're not aware, Candace Burt is the one that puts together Moab and she's also mm -hmm. sober. So I guess I never realized that. Okay, cool. So yeah. there's another opportunity to get a medal from another sober person. Yeah, I have some I have some friends trying to talk me into this 200 mile thing. And I, I 
I'm signed up for a 72 hour event in July next year. And oh my God, where at? Why are you doing 72 uh, it's in miles? Massachusetts. In July? It's in Massachusetts. It's a two mile loop. And you basically set up a camp and just run for 72 hours. I mean, you sleep and all that stuff. But 72 hours or a, a 72 hour race in July just sounds absolutely miserable. Absolutely. Yeah, like- on, a, on a two mile loop. And I don't know. We'll, we'll see what I can accomplish there. My, I, I don't know what the goal is, but um, hopefully it's not too exposed to the sun because I don't know how bad it gets in Massachusetts, but I know Pennsylvania in July. Like, I would hate that. Yeah, it's the humidity that just yeah, it's this zaps, this, zaps the life out of you, man. Exactly, the yeah. East Coast humidity is just it's absolutely terrible, absolutely terrible. Like I went to a uh, running on the West Coast, like uh, I went to Vegas, and I remember I did a three mile run here in Pennsylvania, and it was eighty degrees, and I came home from a three mile run, and I was absolutely drenched. I'm soaked. I'm feeling disgusting. I felt like I was chewing the air. And I go out to Vegas and I do a four mile run in like 95, 96 degrees. And like, I felt fine because it's just a way different kind of heat. It's, it's, it's just completely different. That humidity is just absolutely no joke. And when I went down to North Carolina, it was, the humidity was even worse. It's like, you can really like chew the air. It's so disgusting. It just, it zaps the shit out of you so quickly. Yeah, that's why summer races are so hard around here. And I, I feel I do feel like, though, if you really work hard in the summer and train well, like fall races when they happen. Oh, for sure. I just feel like they see, you know, I have a race in a few weeks and, you know, it's going to be nice, cool, crisp air. And it's going to feel 10 times, you know, it's going to feel a million times better than it did during the summer. So, yeah, it's difficult. Yeah, the humidity is just brutal. And, um, you know, I'm trying to do races now that push my limits and I, you know, to really kind of get in that uncomfortable feeling, you know, um, to do things that maybe I won't finish, you know, to do things that maybe I'll learn something while I'm out there, you know, and um, I think that's kind of where I'm at, you know, I've done a bunch of hundreds and, and I've been able to finish and I think it's really, you know, most have been fairly flat. So, but I think it's, it's one of those things now where I'm like, I want to see what I can really do. I want to see if I can, run in a different sort of environment. Vermont was kind of like that. Um, but, you know, I think it's just one of those things that like embracing a new challenge, you know, I don't want to get too comfortable. And, um, and there's also a lot of great stuff to see, you know, and, and see new places and meet new people. And I think the cool part is, is, you know, just with recovery, I mean, you end up meeting so many people, um, across the country, you know, other sober people and you want to, run races in different places and I always end up meeting somebody, you know, you always end up, we always end up finding our people, which I think is pretty cool at races. For sure. Now you mentioned that you're a, you're a race director. So if I wanted to cross the finish line and get a medal from you, where do I got to go? So our race is called the Womp Romp. It is at Wampatuck State Park in Hingham, Massachusetts. It is on October 22nd. Last year was our first year. Um, We had a 10 mile race. We sold out. We had a hundred people. And this year we have uh, a 10 miler and a 50 K one thing that my co-race director and I, he's also sober. We wanted to make sure that it's going to be a lot of people's first 50 K. So we wanted to make sure they had ample time to finish. So we're going to give them a nine hour cutoff, but it's the trails, you know, 
10 minutes from my house. It's where we do all our training and, you know, we're an ultra sign up. You can look up Womp Romp, W-O-M-P, Romp, R-O-M-P. And uh, yeah, it's a beautiful place. It's a beautiful place to run, especially in the fall where the leaves are changing. And yeah, it's a cool little place south of Boston. And How technical is the elevation like? uh, It's per 10 mile loop. The elevation is like 600 feet to 700 feet, somewhere in there, depending on what your watch says. It is probably, it's like New England technical for probably a third of it. There is some pavement, and then there's some single track. So it's got a, it's got a really good combination for, for everything, which I kind of like for first time trail runners. Our goal is to sort of get people off the road and get them on their trail. Um, okay. We enjoy running there so much that we had a lot of conversations of there should be a race here. There should be a race here. And then we decided, well, if we want there to be a race, we got to put it on. So for someone so, like myself who has never done a trail race uh, and marathon is my longest distance, uh, is that a, would that be considered a, a good transition? It's a beginner. A good, yes. Okay. Not too difficult. Think, it's but, not going to make me hate ultras. Nope. You might, you, I mean, there's, there's always places that you could fall, you know, if you're, if you aren't paying attention um, and that happens, but I think that happens with any race, but we have a lot, I did a group run a few weeks ago and there's going to be a lot of first time ultra runners here. Okay. And I think everybody was a little nervous about the trail and I took them on a loop. So it's three 10.5 mile loops basically. And, you know, we have two full aid stations with food. It's hopefully we're going to have a beautiful day and it's really a good first chance. There's only one really big hill, but you know, six to 700 feet per 10 miles isn't too much. And there's places where you can run really fast and there's places where you just have to sort of watch your step, but awesome. it's, a be- it's a beautiful trail and we give all the money back to the friends of Wampatuck, which is the kind of charity for the park, for the state park and also to free to run, which is Stephanie Case's charity, which goes to help um, girls in the middle East get a chance to run. So nice. we don't keep any money. It all goes back to charity and we just want people to get out there and enjoy you know, we got a bunch of sober people coming that I know from around the country. They're going to come run with us, which is also pretty great. You know, I just want people to see what this trail running and ultra community is. I it, it's It's been so important to my life that I just want people to get out there, become a part of it. And if, hey, if you come out here and you hate it, go run the roads any day. But I just think uh, it's just such a great community that I want to try to build this here. I like it. So two things. First. Um, if it's not already sold out, feel free, uh, please throw a link in the, uh, in the staying fit ODAP page. If you're not already a member of the group, join the group, throw a link in there or send me the link and I'll put it in there. Uh, you know, there's, uh, over seven or 800 sober people in there that a lot of them like to run. So you never know who's in that area. Um, and then also that's something I want to stay connected with you as well, because, uh, that's something I might keep in mind for next year, or even if you have another seasonal one, like in the spring or something. Uh, cause I actually have my next marathon is actually the very next day on the 23rd. So it wouldn't, nice. I wouldn't be able to make it out there in the 22nd, but, um, I would definitely like to keep that in mind as a potential, like first ultra, maybe do that. Like it said, if you have anything in the spring or maybe even next year you might have to link up and come. Yeah, we're definitely out. planning. We're definitely planning to do it next year. The spring is just tough with our own personal races and gotcha. some, you know, it's new England. So some of the trails can get pretty muddy in the spring Okay, and it's used by a lot of mountain bikers. So 
yeah, we want to keep it. Um, we want to keep it every fall. It's it's the most beautiful time to be in New England, and it's always going to be sort of marketed as a sort of grassroots race. You know, it's not. We're not going to have huge banners, and it's not going to be. Uh, you know, it's a grassroots race. You know, and we want people to have a good time. And you know, we we do shirts, and we have we have some really good sponsors that help us out. Ten Drunk Miles is a sponsor. Um, you know, with Squirrels Nut Butter and Move Free Hats and some other places. But we really want we really want to build a community here. That's kind of my goal. And hopefully next year, you know, if the 50K works out, we may add a 50-mile distance as well. So we'll like see it. how the 50K goes. And I just want to give back. You know, this the, ultra, the trail and ultra world has just given me so much and brought so many people into my life, my wife's life. You know, my kids like being around it. It's just... You know, it's another gift of sobriety is that I can do this and put this on for people. And, you know, in a perfect world, this would be like a Northeast meetup for all kinds of sober runners. You know, that's what I that's what I want it to be. You know, I want us to be able to, you know, when the race is over, you know, share some pizza and chit chat about our day and, you know, get a chance for some fellowship. That's what I want. For you know? sure. that, that's what's important to me now, you know, is is spending time with people and meeting people and hearing their stories and. You know, I spent a lot of my years alone, you know, and now the ability to just, you know, spend some time and have coffee with another, with another sober runner is quite a gift, I think. Yeah, for sure. So if that race is on the 22nd, uh, my race on the 23rd, so on the 24th, uh, you can send me the link for the 2024 early registration and uh, I'm, I'm in. I'll, uh, I'll we'll be do there it, next man. Year. We'll I'm do it. To, I'll check that we'll out next it. year for sure. Uh, so, uh, your your sober co-race director is he also a runner or is he just an or more of an organizer yeah he is it's funny we started um we randomly because he listened to 10, 10 junk miles i listened to them he posted on the 10 junk miles nation facebook page he was going to do some stupid like 40 mile eight hour run around the track one day so my wife and i saw it we went and joined him and then we sort of became friends and i started running with him on the trails and I didn't know he was an alcoholic. He was actively drinking at the time. And, you know, he sort of was attracted to, I guess, recovery. You know, I, I don't, I believe that we don't, we don't recruit people, right. We, it's a program of attraction. And, you know, after running for a while, he told me he had a problem with booze and that, you know, he had stopped drinking, but he, I guess needed to do something else. And, I'm always very open about my recovery because I never had anybody to turn to. Um, I never had anybody to turn to when I needed it. So I'm always very open. And I had talked about my story a lot and um, yeah, he eventually ended up coming to a meeting with me and, you know, here we are now, you know, he's got, you know, almost two, you know, almost two years now. So I love it. Yeah. I'm very fortunate for the people in my life that, He's just kind of, you know, we happen to listen to the same podcast. You're going to have to, now uh, here we are. When this is over, uh, you're going to have to uh, send me, send me his name and I'll got to reach out to him and see if he wants to get on here as well. I think that'd be really cool. Definitely. We'll do. Awesome. Uh, Yeah. Is there any, I think we covered, we covered a lot today. Uh, You just kind of like you move through your, uh, your story, just like, so fluidly that it just kind of just like progressed too, and like normally too uh a lot of times what ends up making 
a lot of these episodes take so I don't want to say take so long, like it's an inconvenience, but uh, a lot of times when we get done with the recovery part and we go into the running, a lot of times it's like, it's backing up so much. Maybe they ran a little bit beforehand and whatnot. And it's like, for you, it was very unique too, because we got up to like, I think we're sharing your story and you're like seven, eight months sober. And then it's like, Oh, when do you go for your first run? Oh, at one year, it was like your story literally just linked right in. And it was just like a perfect transition. And so like we covered everything from, you know, being a child till right now. Uh, did we miss anything, anything, anything you think the the listener should know any, anything else? I mean, you already mentioned your race, anything else you want to plug, anything else you want to promote? Um, no, I mean, I would just say too, you know, we, we very, you know, I, I kind of glossed over this, but you know, I'm very fortunate that because I was sober, my wife and I decided we should have another child. So we had that about three years into my recovery. And now we have two daughters, um, you know, and our youngest, yeah, she wouldn't, she wouldn't be here if I wasn't sober, you know? So, um, no, I'm just, I I don't really have anything else to plug, you know, my race. And I, I'm just, I I just want to say I'm very fortunate to be able to tell my story. You know, I, I appreciate the opportunity and, you know, if anybody wants to ever reach out to me, I'm always willing, you know, to help. I'm always willing to, um, to listen. Um, probably the easiest way is on Instagram. Send me a message. It's at seaside runner. And I'm always willing to help somebody, you know, and if you're local, I'm always willing to take you to a meeting. Um, I'm just, I'm just very grateful that my life is so different today. And, uh, that I'm here, you know, I didn't think I'd be here. You know, this all seems like time that wasn't going to exist if I kept drinking. So, you know, I'm very fortunate. Yeah. Sometimes are rough and, you know, sometimes, you know, I have, I have days that are tough. I don't have weeks or months anymore, you know? And, uh, I try to remind myself just cause I feel maybe like I'm having a bad day. That doesn't mean that day is going to last forever, you know? So, and that I have the tools of the program. I can reach out to other people. You know, I, you know, a problem shared is a problem cut in half. I don't have to sit with my, you know, I don't, I don't have to sit with stuff and not talk to people about it anymore. You know, I've got wonderful, wonderful people around me. And uh, I, you know, I have to remind myself to use them sometimes because I don't have to do this alone. None of us do. For sure. And, uh, you know, whenever we do a follow-up episode, you know, knock on wood, as long as everything goes well, um, I think you may or may not, at that point have uh maybe uh an ultra run coach that you can uh you can throw out there and you can and you can put on blast because you may you may or may should, not yeah. know someone you may or may not know someone who who might be a coach by then and everything should be good so we can we can absolutely we can name drop then and you know said person might not be an alcoholic but rumor also has it they have plenty of experience uh being around an alcoholic so uh they, they might not true. be yes. one, but they might know how to, uh, how to adapt to coaching one and how to handle an approach. So we can, that's something we can, we can always, uh, bring up later too. We can always throw a link in, in the show notes for you at a later date as well. Cause always like to show some love, you know what I mean? So absolutely. Especially for those that, uh, stuck around with us and put up with so much when we were in our active addiction, you know, the small things that we can give back and help them in any way, I think is very, very important. Uh, you know, I, I, I say over and over that, you know, they significant others of, uh, alcoholics, addicts, you know, they are heroes in their own for just 
everything they have to put up with and then being there for us. And, you know, just it, it, I, I know for me, I don't think I would be here and, or who knows if I'd be sober, if it wasn't for my wife, just being so patient and so caring and just holding me down, you know, she's, she's the rock of the family. And yep. so, well, the know. only, you know, I hear old timers say it all the time and, you know, the only thing worse than being an alcoholic is being married to one or the child of one, you know, and, uh, I, you know, I, I can't express enough how lucky I am that my wife's still here and she saw a lot of good in me that I couldn't see in myself. So, um, and now yeah, other people are starting to see that same good too. And hopefully you see it hopefully. in yourself at this point. Yeah, I, you know, I do. And I have to remind myself at times, you know, I'm not that same person anymore. For sure. Uh, now, uh, what for the, for people listening to this episode, for people who might be struggling and they might be sober, but they're thinking about picking up a drink or a drug today, or for the person who, uh, might be in their active addiction right now. And they're looking for a reason to put the drink or the drug down while they're listening to this episode today. Uh, what can you say to the listener that would help them either, either put the drink down or not pick it up today? Wow. I think, I think one thing is, is that I understand how you feel, you know, and the way you feel right now, you don't have to feel this way anymore. You know, like you can stop today feeling this way and a drink or drug is never going to solve any of these problems. And, and I thought that it would. And thing, you know, especially people too, that are thinking about going back out, you know, having a drink or, or, or using a drug is that it never gets better. You know, nobody ever walks back into a meeting and says, well, I went drinking again and man, you won't believe all the great stuff that happened. You know, it only gets worse. And, and I want people to understand they, they, they should value themselves, you know, people love them and that they can get sober. They don't have to get sober for six months on the first day. You know, I think people worry about, well, if I stop drinking, what's going to happen at Christmas time or what's going to happen on the 4th of July or, you know, what am I going to do at my daughter's wedding? You don't have to worry about that. that stuff hasn't happened yet. You know, all you have to do is get sober and worry about today. And to reach out to people, people are here to help you. You know, there is, you can walk into a meeting in any place. You can reach out to me. Nobody is going to judge you. We are here to help you. And anybody you meet has been through a similar experience, just like you. Um, you don't have to, you, you know, there is no reason to, to pick up again, especially if you're thinking about it, you know, why you're sober. I, I have seen men that have lost their partners, their children, um, you know, women that have lost their husbands, their parents, and they've been able to get through all these experiences, you know, even their own illnesses and be able to do it sober. You know, I, there, you know, there, there is no, a drink isn't going to solve any of your problems in that life does get better. You know, life does get better. And I, I didn't think that, you know, if I had looked at my life when I first came in and I first put down the drink, and envision my life, I would have shortchanged myself because it's vastly better than I could ever imagine, you know, and that's because I kept coming one day at a time. Very simple. If I start thinking about, you know, if we think about our recovery as months and years, we're going to be screwed. You know, we have to think about what, what can I do today? And that to me is the most important thing. I love it. 
I heard an old timer uh, say, and this was actually just repeated again recently at a meeting that I just heard. Uh, they said, if, uh, you know, as alcoholics, if we drink over a problem, then the next day at the very minimum, we have at least two problems now. And, yep. you know, that's yep. something that makes, uh, makes, uh, it makes so much sense when you really think about it, because that problem is not going away. And now you got more to add on to it. So that answer is very spot on and I absolutely love it. Thank you so much for being on this episode with us today, Matt. This really was a pleasure. Uh, the couple people that uh, suggested you definitely were spot on. This was a great story. A lot of great distances, uh, you know, just from and, and I related to your story a lot as well from not really picking up the addiction till later on in life. And then it just it spirals very, very quickly uh, to then getting sober, you know, as early 30. I mean, you know, I got sober at 30. 30, 31, you know, you got sober 34, 35. So I, I relate a lot to your story here. And, you know, it's, it was like refreshing to hear it again as well. Uh, so absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing it with us. And then, you know, making it from 5k all the way up to a hundred mile, you know, I see, see 200 miles in your near distance. And I, I see you getting a medal from a, from a sober person at 240, hopefully one day as well. Uh, so that would be absolutely amazing. So, you know, thank you just so much for sharing your experience, strength, and hope with us today, Matt. We really appreciate it. On behalf of all of our listeners and all of the country that they are downloading this in, we want to thank you so much on behalf of all of our social media platforms, everybody that's following along. Uh, all we ask from us to you is that you continue staying healthy, continue staying fit. And Matt, my brother, tell us how you're doing it. One day at a time. Absolutely love it. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Staying Fit Odette. If you yourself identify as someone in recovery, whether it be from alcoholism, substance abuse, anxiety, depression, or any other type of mental health issue, then please join the group on Facebook at Staying Fit O-D-A-A-T, three different words. If you do not identify as someone in recovery, but you like everything we have going on and you want to continue staying in the loop with everything, then please follow us on Instagram at Staying Fit O-D-A-A-T, you can also email us with any questions, comments, or concerns at stayingfitodaat at gmail.com. Until next time, just know you're loved, continue staying healthy, continue staying fit, and please keep doing this one day at a time. <laughs>